0: To another episode of vertical momentum where we talk to today's thought leaders and game changers and today is a definite gentleman coming on game he's changing the whole game uh, i want to thank our sponsors which you guys know as a veteran all my sponsors are veterans veteran-owned companies 100 percent of the time uh when i was on active duty i got hooked on energy drinks but as i get older I can only have one a day. So I choose a product called uh, Physics Zero, which is very uh, low stim, but enough energy and gives me focus with no sugar. And no and um, so it's Physics Zero by Vera. Thank you so much, Jason Lane Curtis, for sponsoring the show. We love you, brother. Guys, today we have an amazing gentleman come on. Um, I first heard him on Tom's show, and he blew my mind. I had to listen to the episode three different times. Um, he's an author. He's just changing the whole game on resilience. Rich, welcome to the show, my friend. How are you today?
1: Oh, great. Thank you for having me. Uh, great to be here.
0: Oh, man, your episode on Tom's, Tom's episode, like I said, it blew me away. I listened to it three times because um, I had another podcast called Success, Your Why Powers Your How and it's amazing when you kept talking about a person finding their why before they can they do anything else and that's what really intrigued me about yourself i got to ask you uh your last name yes you know what nationality cuz i'm i'm italian so i just wanted to see what nationality it was
1: yes yeah. often confused for italian but it's actually irish so yeah okay
0: so how how do you do you pronounce your name
1: Uh divini divini Div- yeah All right.
0: Okay, cause like so, I was like, "Wait a minute, is he Italian?" What?
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm actually. My my mom always says uh, we're actually mutts, which is nice because you know my 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 uh, my grandfather was Maltese Italian, my grandmother was Greek, my dad's family was Irish. You know, so we're we're really just we're just mutts, which is which is good because mutts live a long time. So
0: yeah, and and they don't have a lot of issues that purebreds have. Right,
1: they? right. So
0: so how's your week going so far?
1: So far, so good. Yeah, it's uh, it's you know, it's Tuesday. It's it's the weeks are starting to feel a little bit more like weeks as we, I hope, see the the light at the end of the tunnel of all this stuff. You know, it's so hard to distinguish day by day sometimes as we went through twenty twenty. But um, but yeah, it's Tuesday and it's uh, so far so good. How about yours?
0: Hi, every everything is going great. Like I said, I just had my my first energy, and only energy drink of the day. So, and I get to hang out with you. So <laughs> life is life is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I've actually talked to some people that you actually were in in service with Mm -hmm. and even went to, uh, buds with. So, um, and the biggest thing that takeaway that I've heard, you know, a lot of times when you hear, uh, you know, um, people that serve with other people, they're like, Oh, he was a warrior. But, um, most people talked about your heart that I've talked to. And they said you had, um, one of the biggest hearts that they've ever uh, met. So uh, where did you get your heart of service from?
1: Wow. That's a, well, that's such a compliment, um, especially in a, you know, in a warrior culture, it's good to, it's good to know that. Um, gosh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, probably my family, I think my, um, you know, my, my family was the beginning of it. I had a nice, a really nice upbringing, uh, great parents, um, very supportive and encouraging and and really you know my mom again she she's i mean my mom knows seven languages fluently she knew five languages by the time she was 5 years old uh and so she's really brilliant and very worldly and so you know you you get you can't help but get a bunch of open mindedness um from from that type of aspect and my dad um you know a lawyer um and and kind of always really I shouldn't say always, he he actually never pushed us down any lanes. He just said, hey, it was almost like he just said, hey, I want you to, to do what you want to do. And, and he really gave us space to do that. So I think it started there. And, you know, I have two, uh, three, uh, two wonderful brothers, one wonderful sister. Um, and so great family life first. And then, of course, you know, the teams uh, were an influence. And, of course, my wife. I've been married to my wife for, you know, 20 plus years. And she's one of the kindest most empathetic people i've ever met, and so she of course has rubbed off on me so so I think uh, you just uh you you become the people you surround yourself with and and that's probably what happened
0: so what kind of little boy was rich
1: um, you know i was uh you know I always consider myself a very average kid I was an average student, I was an average athlete um, I was machi- mischievous, just like any other kid was not not overly so, but you know but had my fair share and um but you know ultimately I was always curious and um and I loved the idea of of challenging myself and and discovery and my my twin brother I have a twin brother and he and I from a very early age wanted to be navy pilots my dad was a private pilot so he used to t- he used to take us flying all the time and um and he and I and my brother and I were just hooked and we said you know wow, we have to be jet pilots and of course the navy was attractive because the navy guys Landed their jets on ships, which was like, oh my god, it doesn't get harder. I mean, it can't be any harder than that, right? So, so the challenge of that really was was something that uh, drew me in. Um, and then I learned about seals really just after the the first Gulf War in the in the early nineties. I didn't know what seals were, and then when I learned about them and started reading about them, I was like, wow, these guys are are pretty cool. They do everything, and um, and that and of course the training was really tough too. So, so I think I was just kind of always driven to. Try to, I, I always kind of for some reason wanted to step out to my edges and explore my edges and see what I could do. And so that's kind of been a somewhat of a motto my whole life.
0: Now, I love, you know, I, I've talked to, you know, a couple, you know, Navy SEALs lately and, you know, they're all, and they're not for me, you know, they're not what I expected when I first met them, you know, like Brent Gleason and those guys, you know, they, they were totally not what I would have thought. Yeah. You got a totally different breed. Um, and, you know, when I've talked to, you know, operators, you guys are, are very, uh, cerebral. Mm-hmm. I'm noticing, um, you know, w- very well read. Was that something that were you always, were you always a reader?
1: I was always a reader. Yeah. And I, it was, uh, it was actually, um, it was a pleasant surprise I, you know, I had started reading about Navy SEALs and I, re- I recognized just because of the nature of special operations, they were different and they had to be more cunning and just, you know, kind of thought, you know, kind of a little bit, um, uh, kind of a little bit different. Right. And, um, and so, and, and so it was really cool for me to think about to realize when I got to SEAL training that, that all these guys, I was surrounded by guys like this and, and it wasn't even, you know, it wasn't even just the, you know, obviously the college or the officers were college graduates. And that's, that's one form of education, but but the enlisted guys were so diverse in where they came from. I mean, there were a bunch of enlisted guys who actually, I had, I had one guy in my buds class who was a, he had a degree in nuclear physics and he just, he didn't, he didn't want to go officers and he just decided to enlist in the Navy. And so, um, and even the guys who hadn't been to college, most, a lot of them had the enlisted guys, but even the guys who hadn't just had this incredible appetite for, um, for knowledge, um, and I think the what really was cool was was the, dichot- the dichotomy of it all. Right, there were just so much. Even though the you could almost you could call the group fairly hegemonic in terms of uh, the drive and the grit and things like that, um, the 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 diversity in, in terms of background and perspectives and 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 things like that was just really cool. So it was cool to have a team kind of come form together, and and I literally felt like. Uh, I was surrounded by superheroes. Um, I was like, man, these people are so much better than me. And, and ironically, as I got to know these guys and they became my brothers and teammates, I realized they felt the same way <laughs> themselves about everybody around them. So, so really, it was just a, it was a group of people and individuals who consistently like to try to surround themselves with people who they felt could up their game. And that's, it's just a really cool place to be.
0: Um, I now I love everybody's recruiting story because everybody has a different recruiting story. So, what was your recruiting story like? Did you just walk in and say, "Hey, I want to be a Navy SEAL"? <laughs> well, it, interesting
1: enough. So, I, so, because I was bent on being a Navy pilot, I knew that I had to go to college, and I knew I had to get commissioned as an officer. So, I had already gone down that pathway of of getting a commission um, as I started thinking about the SEAL team. So, so I was, in, I was in Navy ROTC at Purdue University. And, um, and I, I said to myself, well, I think I want to be a Navy SEAL, but there was no real distinct pathway on how to do that. And the, and the, the folks at the unit had never had a SEAL, had never had a midshipman and go to SEAL training. Um, and so it, what's interesting is my dad, who's a lawyer, um in connecticut and has been for for 50 years uh he mentioned to me he said you know i have a i have a client who is a former i i mentioned to him that you wanted to be an Navy seal and he said he was a former underwater demolition team member so the so for your audience those who you who might know the the udt were the predecessors to the seals i mean it all started with the underwater demolition teams and draper kaufman and the and the uh, the early uh, the the early forties to prepare for the for the D-Day invasion, the UDTs were formed. Um, this guy was on the was 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 a UDT during these invasions, and he was a he was an avid photographer. And so I said, I, I'd love to meet this guy. So I was home one summer vacation, you know, for for uh, from college, and and I met this guy. His name was Barry McCabe, and Barry and I sat down, and and he showed me all of his photo albums of when he was on the beaches of of um, of uh, of Japan and 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 the Pacific and man they were so incredible and he just told these stories and and I was like man this and I I was I just loved the water I loved I loved everything about the ocean I loved being in the water underwater everything about it so it's just this kind of frogman philosophy really resonated with me and and he said I I know this this captain he's a reserve captain who's who helps guys try to get To seal training, you know, by helping them with their, you know, PT scores, and he 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 introduces them to current seals to get recommendations, and and so that's what I did. I got with a guy named Captain Drew Bissett, and uh, interviewed with some was a bunch of seals, passed my PT test, and put in my application, and sure enough, I got I got picked up, and I was the first midshipman from Purdue University to go to seal training, which was cool. and that was it. And and then I showed up at the beaches of Coronado. And, you know, once you're there, it's all on you at that point. <laughs> so, so the recording story got me to Buds. And then, of course, get going through Buds is its own other challenge.
0: You know, I talked to John McCaskill. Uh, we were talking last week. And we were talking about you had to have a certain mentality to make it. You know, and the guys that got there that were all ripped and shredded and were PT, you know, PT studs. A lot of them didn't make it because they didn't have the mentality right. of never quit. And, you know, that's what, you know, John and Brent, you know, that's what they're all saying is that you, if if you had the mentality of just do that one more push up. Right. Just do that one more, you know, uh, whatever it was, just do one more. So what was your mindset like? You know, I know, you know, you heard the bell wrong many times. What was your mindset like? Because, you know, a lot of people when we get out of the military, we forget what made us good in the military. Yeah. So we're talking about mindset. So what was your mindset like going through, you know, Hell Week and, and Buds?
1: Well, so John and, and Brett are, are absolutely right. And and I'd almost, I so I'm fascinated with kind of going to the very, very elemental things, you know. So I'd take what they said and I'd, try, I'd actually, i dive into it kind of almost to the atomic level and say, okay, what is it that causes someone to say, just do one more push-up, just do one more step, just do one more. And what it is, is it's, a, it's, a, it's an ability to understand and compartmentalize in a way that says, hey, even, even though everything around me seems like it's crumbling and it seems like everything's sub-zero in terms of my, my ability to move, my physicality, my temperature, because I'm so cold or whatever, um, I'm just gonna focus on the next moment. That's it, and whatever whatever that whatever that distance is between now and the next moment, whatever I choose that to be, the next moment could be the next meal, or the next moment could be the next day, or the next moment could be the next step, right? Um, but the ability to chunk your environment in a way that allows you to forget about everything else and just move to the next step, move to the next moment, and then continuously do that throughout a process is what every Navy SEAL has in common, and I would say that the the you know the the ripped athletes who didn't make it and and you know to give some of the ripped athletes some credit there were some ripped athletes who did make it right <laughs> it wasn't all the you know so some of those guys did make it but the difference is i think uh, for those who made it and those who didn't regardless of how athletic you were coming in were that whatever allowed them whatever allowed each one of us to get to those beaches of san diego to start buds whatever that process was to get there involved Inside of it, some practice in just taking it step by step and really grinding it out and gutting it out and understanding and being comfortable with this idea that hey i don 't know a lot about what 's going on around me right now, and nor can I control it but i 'm going to focus on what I can control and move to that and then when once I get there i 'm going to i 'm going to kind of look out again and choose again what to what to focus on and move to that, and it becomes a step by step process, and that is in remarkably um, uh valuable for military life and specifically seal life and especially you know we had a very kinetic time frame right but combat is like that i mean combat there's no time uh to worry about those things you can't control you must 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 continue to step through until the mission until the until the fight is won uh until the mission's accomplished and and buds trains you for that uh and kind of uh, hyper develops that ability so i think that's those are the, that's the atomic level of the mindset
0: so what was the the moment when you finally figured out that you made it through hell week what was that you know how were you feeling at that moment because you know um even you know those guys were talking about it, they said it was such a, a relief just to have a feel a little bit normal again <laughs> after showers and stuff yeah so what was that moment like well, I,
1: I still count it. To I, I count that moment, uh, and I and it's funny because I remember getting secured from Hell Week, which is a Friday afternoon, and then you go and you have pizza and you shower and you you go to bed and you sleep for like eighteen hours, you know. Um, but what I what really sticks with me um, was the next morning. Um, I remember you know Friday when we finished Hell Week, it was kind of a cloudy day in San Diego. It was cold; everything was cold, of course, but it was just kind of cloudy and 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 mucky and murky. And, and we kind of, we, we had pizza and stuff. and we went to bed at Gatorade, but I remember getting up that Saturday morning and it was a crystal clear, beautiful day. And my little brother lived in in San Diego at the time. And, um, and so he picked me up from buds. And I remember kind of limping, <laughs> limping out to the, to the, through the quarter deck to where he picked me up and he picked me up and we, I got into his car and we went to where he was staying And then he had to go to work. And so I just kind of hug out in his apartment and I just used the, I, I, you know, played games on the computer. I called my family, um, to tell me, actually, I think we had breakfast first, but I called my family and that to me is, it sticks out as one of the, one of the best days of my life. You know, of course I, you know, I, I, count in that like the birth of my kids, marrying my wife. There's a lot of highlights, but that's that day, that Saturday morning, um, was probably the first time I really let it sink in and said to myself, man, that was, that's really cool. Um, and, um, but what's interesting and I'm not sure if, uh, if those guys talked about, uh, the, the phenomenon of, uh, of post hell week depression. Um, but the, the there's a phenomenon called post hell week depression. And so it's a very real thing. And I had heard about it, <clears throat> um, beforehand I experienced it, uh, afterwards and it was a really weird, and that me what, what post hell week depression is, is that you're, you, you you have You've geared yourself up. I mean, Hell Week's the fifth week of, of SEAL training, right? So you've geared yourself up for for five week, or for four weeks getting ready for Hell Week, and then you go through Hell Week, and it's such a major, major accomplishment that once you're done, you feel like, oh, my God, I mean, I just tackled this thing that was so intensely um, tough, right? Um, and there's a point at which after that kind of settles in that you realize you still have, like, four and a half months to go <laughs> of buds training because buds training is six months long. And, and when you, when that sinks in, there's almost a, a depression that sets in that says, you know what, this is not over. You know, I still, you know, I'm, I'm, we still have to do this. I still have to do this for four and a half more months. Um, and I think that's also part of the training because it it, it almost trains you to say, Hey, even though you make these accomplishments like that, you have to, Kind of come back to baseline and keep moving because the overall goal still is in front of you, and you can't get seduced by the highs you can't get crushed by the lows, you have to keep going so that it's it, it was interesting to kind of feel those two
0: polarities after something like Hull Week. and one thing I really appreciate about you is you know you talk a lot about you know enjoying the process you know because everything has you know you have to it's it usually never. You know, like if you win a marathon, it's usually after you win, it's kind of like, yeah, but I really enjoyed the process of, you know, getting in shape to be able to do it. So what was it like, you know, knowing when you got, when you got your pinned on your, you know, your trident? knowing that the work was just beginning yeah well so it just yeah. it's kind of like one one continuous process well there's always
1: excitement because you know you you've you know I kind of think about it in terms of kind of exploring your edges walking out to your edges and then once you you reach one edge you're now at a new vista and you can see the next edge right it's kind of like seeing the next you can't see the you you, you head out to the horizon so that you can see the next horizon and so so that's kind of how I approach the whole thing I think the the what I think the process going through training like that, what you what you come out of with is what I would define as true confidence. Uh, and the way I would define true confidence is uh, is the ability to know that no matter how tough or bad an environment gets around me, um, I will per, I will I will make it through. I, I have what it takes to 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 stop to stop to think through the issue and to and to persevere. And make it through. And that, I think, is true confidence. You come out of SEAL training with that. And that just gets hammered in as you go through your SEAL career, especially if you are, um, you know, well, fortunate enough to, you know, do the job and go to combat. Because, again, we we were able to to live our SEAL lives um, through a very kinetic time where actually we actually got to do the job of Navy SEALs. And that's not that's not common. People kind of, I think, uh, miss understand that they, they kind of think that seals are out there working all the time doing missions and things like that. And that's just not the case. Your, your, you're, you know, missions are, are when there's no war and conflict are very, very hard to come by highly selective. It takes a lot to, to, to approve and things like that. So, so there, there are guys who go through a career and they never, they never get to do any real world missions. It's all training. It's all preparation. So we, we got to do that. And even though I'd say war is, holistically bad it's you know we should we should be we should we should all make sure we think very deeply before engaging in in something like war um it's also necessary at times of course but uh but it was still it was still um a gift in some ways to be able to go do a job and do it for your country and do some do do what you had trained to do so uh and you do that with that deep confidence you get out of that training
0: uh, you know, and a question I have, um, another question I normally don't ask, but I just feel led, Um was your faith as strong as it is then as it is now?
1: Well, yeah. And, and so, so I think for me, um, I have, I have over the years um, thought, thought deeply about what faith means to me. And, um, and I think from a, uh, from a, you know, and just to, and, and just to kind of, keep it in a in a kind of a human performance realm for me i always i always wanted to make sure that there was the faith was in myself and in my teammates um because there was a uh because you lean on these guys so much you trust them and then you trust yourself and you know hey we we will figure this out we'll get through it and so um and so aside from the 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 depth of of analysis and thought I did at the kind of um, religious levels of faith, because I did a lot of that too. Um, The faith in myself and my teammates never wavered and, and only got stronger throughout that whole process.
0: Now, how many, uh, I'm sure you've been on numerous, too many deployments and too many, too much action to talk about, but uh, how many years did you put in the teams? I
1: did just under 21 years. So, um, and in that, uh, somewhere around 13 deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, and then a handful of others to other locations. Um, so yeah, a lot of time away from the family.
0: <laughs> now, were you married during this time in the, in this? In the yeah.
1: So ironically, I, you know, my, for the first five years I was in the teams, I was not married. I, I, I joined the teams in 1996. So, and I met my wife in January, 2001 and we were married in July, 2001, you know, it was a, we, we pretty much knew, knew we wanted to marry each other. And I remember proposing to her and I said, you know, you know, the SEAL teams, it's a, it's an interesting life. Uh, it's, you know, I'll deploy now and then there's workups, you know, kind of laid out what it looks like in terms of timing. So a lot of training things like that. But, you know, I think, you know, obviously we're, we're in it for that. We're in it together. And she was like, yep, I, we got this. And sure enough, you know, two months later, September 11th happened. And, um, and everything changed. And so she's been she was with me through all of the all of the times we had two kids during that. And, and she's, uh, she was always supportive. She was always there. Um, I, I, you know, I, I have to tell you, that probably the hardest thing for me out of anything about my career was leaving the family every time that was always the hardest thing, because, because um, it just you can't, well, you know, the veterans on that you and the veterans who are listening to this know that there's you just can't describe that feeling to other people when you have to say goodbye to your loved ones for that long. Uh, You know, it just, it's an indescribable um, feeling. And that was always the hardest for me. And that's really when we talk about the sacrifice that our, our military members make, that's, you know, uh, of course, there's obviously life and limb and things like that. But, um, but even those who, who don't lose life or limb, the, the, the sacrifice of their time, their time away from their loved ones is a huge one. That we all need to be grateful for.
0: And you know, I I know, you know, um, my wife. I consider you know she's my bride. We've um, known her for over thirty years. And you know, even when I when I was in the military, you know, it, I always found that if everything is okay at home, it takes a lot of burden off of your. Cause you can focus on your mission. Abroad. It does.
1: Yeah, it does, and 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 that's why you need strong you need a strong partner <laughs> because because um, that's such the case and and this and the strong partners will will deliberately uh, shield you from burden when you're overseas because they know they know there are certain things you just don't you don't need to worry about and I know your your wife probably did it and my wife did as well um, and and interesting enough we we even especially during the the most kinetic combat times we we would decide to talk like once a week instead of you know, we had the communications in my day, you know, in the 2000s, we had the communications, we could call, we could call home every night if we wanted to, you know. Um, but you realize that didn't work. First of all, it made the deployment longer. And second of all, it what it did was it it, it created an expectation around and a regularity around kind of talking um, that just the environment sometimes didn't support. And so if we just waited once and just say, hey, we'll talk once a week, it alleviated a lot of that pressure. So you kind of learn those those nuances with your partner. And then of course, once you add kids into the mix, it becomes even more complex, but you have to learn those, those nuances with the kids as well.
0: And I've noticed, I mean, that women in general, not, mean, not, you know, not every woman, but women in general, pretty much they have like a sixth sense where if something is a little off, my wife will tell me and I'm going to trust her 99.9% of the time because she's right. Almost a hundred percent. of the Yeah.
1: Time. Yeah. No, I agree. And I, and I would almost, you know, it's interesting. Cause I think I've experienced that, I, you know, or I've experienced, that, I've seen that and, and and I've seen it happen with, with any spouses, right? Because obviously there's, there's a lot of women serving overseas as well. And so you have the, <laughs> you have, a, you know, the men's spouses who are staying um, back or, or any partner, whatever, whatever you know, in, in whatever flavor that is. But when you have that type of emotional relationship um i think there's an intuitiveness to it and there's a sixth sense that that is developed um such that uh that you can be supportive that way and know hey okay there's something off or we need to kind of um you know uh, uh figure that out or dial it in or or talk more it's 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 really important to have that uh that relation to be solid
0: so, you know, now we're going to talk about, you know, you your transitioning out. You know, I've talked, like I said, hundreds of, of, of veterans and, you know, some of the things they, t- they tell me, the number one thing they miss the most is the camaraderie. You know, they miss their teammates. Um, number two is they, they, they don't have a mission anymore. Mm-hmm. For me, I was so built up to being Sergeant Kaufman that when I got medically discharged uh, 10 years ago, I didn't know who Richard was. So I kind of like had to find out um, who I was and had to rebuild myself. What was, now when you transitioned out, did you notice something was off mentally?
1: Well, interestingly enough, um, I think there's a, there's a difference sometimes between uh, when you transition out. And so the, the only reason why I'll say this, because I have friends who transitioned out at like eight years or or six years or ten years, right? I transitioned at twenty plus years, right? So, um, so in terms of the job, I had pretty much done everything I wanted to do inside the military. I was at a, I was at a position where I was starting to rank out of kind of the SEAL stuff, <laughs> if you, if you know what I mean, right? So, um, and so 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 for me, that the transitioning out of the job was was very very easy. I was looking forward to another another um, challenge, you know, uh, you know, another edge, if you will, to, to kind of explore. Um, so I would definitely put myself in the category of of someone who says that I and I try not to, you know, I don't for me, the word miss is tough, because it, it, it at least for me, it it implies a longing. And so I and I don't long for that time frame, I, I, I kind of try to see it as a, as a time frame, I'm very grateful for, if I were back in the teams, I, I would not be um, I'd be I'd be a you know I'd be an 06 and I'd be doing stuff on a staff and I wouldn't be kind of with the team guys um, and so I wouldn't be in that environment where I'd be like with the guys the, the times that I really really enjoyed so so I try to say to myself I look very fondly back on those times that we were uh, you know kind of the, like those camaraderie times the times where you're just with your with your guys and you're just I mean you're laughing so hard you're crying right because you're around a fire out in Iraq or or even, I mean, some of the most miserable situations. Some of the funniest things happen. This is where humor really comes into play. And I think that's one of the the superpowers of of high performing teams, and specifically military teams, is that humor is used so brilliantly <clears throat> to kind of keep you going. And so, so my transition was um, um, was not. It was it was not really. Uh, I, I, w- I welcomed it. Um, I would say that I felt. I felt the unease of just jumping and throwing myself into a new environment. And I did feel a little bit of unease kind of being by myself because in the military, you seem, you're just, you seem like you're always with, especially the teams. There's always people around you. There's always people you can kind of lean on. They're going through the same thing you are and jumping out into an environment of being on my own and, uh, and trying to kind of forging my own path was definitely unique and definitely um, uncomfortable. But uh, but I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed, I mean, I, I enjoyed, I, I, I sought, I, I sought out that discomfort because I knew it was an edge I needed to conquer. So, so it was a, it was kind of, um, a little bit of both for me, I think, but for the most part, I was happy to, to be transitioning because I, you know, my kids are now teenagers, right? And so, and I transitioned four years ago and it was just, I'm, I'm now home and it's kind of the meat of their, their, uh, kind of, um, their growth and their, their they're the time of their life where they really, really need a dad. I mean, I think kids, you know, as they're in their younger ages, they definitely need mom a lot, you know, and certainly they need dad too, if, if possible. But, but when they're, you know, teenage boys, you know, they, they need their dad, they really do. And, and to be home here with them, I was just enormously grateful for.
0: I love that. Now, when I interview somebody, you know, I hang on every word and sometimes there's keywords that I actually count how many times they're used. And you've used the word "edge" five times so far. <laughs> so, what is it like? You know, like I was a I was a tank commander. So, it, you know, it was I always had that excitement. There was always that thrill. Yeah. So, when you got out, how did you um, fulfill that? You know, thrill. Yeah. Well, what was that like? Yeah. Well, so thrill,
1: thrill is, it can mean a couple of things. It can mean excitement, like deep excitement. It could also mean like fear and anxiety, (laughs) right? so, and so for me, I think edges, uh, for for me, at least edges are defined as those, those steps out into the unknown um, that, that explore my potential. Um, And, and for me, that means, okay, I need to explore some of those things that might make me feel anxious or uncomfortable Ah, uh, because that's an edge that, you know, and I, and I relate it because I, I always I've always hated heights, right? I just don't like them. And so walking up to an edge uh, of something high makes me nervous. <laughs> and so I kind of related to the same thing is what are the, what are those or what are those things that could make me nervous? And so so, for example, I, I said to myself, well, you know, I had an opportunity to kind of join the leadership space and and work with a company out of St. Louis who did leadership, and a buddy of mine, simon sinek, who's who's an author um, in the leadership space. and and that job was going to require me, Uh, to to give talks in front of hundreds of people and to teach classes in front of people. And that really kind of made me uncomfortable and nervous. And I said to myself, "Okay, if it's making me uncomfortable and nervous, I should probably conquer that edge. And so I deliberately stepped into that. So I think I think that was my my walk uh, into the edge. And I started getting pretty good at it and started getting comfortable. I said, okay, the next edge is writing a book. You know, I want to I want to try that endeavor because I've always loved writing. And that's that's an edge and it's on my own it's my ideas and you know how to, how that feels so i'm i'm one of those people who's consistently trying to look for the next thing so that i can just i think growth is i mean well yeah i believe growth is just moving to your edge and then getting good at it and then finding the next one and and just expanding your your arc as much as possible and by, and expanding your arc is going to require stepping out to those edges of discomfort and and uncomfortable and and and, and um and stress and anxiety so that you might grow.
0: You know, I love that. Um, and when I talk, talk to people, you know, veterans, a lot of veterans, when they get out of the military, it seems to be now more than ever. They either want to open up a t-shirt hat company, uh, a t-shirt hat company, coffee company, or liquor <laughs> company. Within, you know, six months, they're $10,000 in debt and don't know what the hell right. has happened. And a lot of it is, I, I think, is attributed to they never had that hard conversation with their significant other at the coffee table about what was going, what their plans were for the future. So can you take us to that kitchen table and talk, you know, when you and your wife are talking about, all right, this is what I want to do. You know, how did that conversation go?
1: Yeah. So thank goodness my wife has always been someone who's supported me in in exploring my edges, uh, because I've tried to do it in a way that, um, that, it, you know, has risk, but mitigates risk for, or, uh, for the family. And so, and that's probably my background too. You kind of say, okay, I'm going to, uh, every, every SEAL mission is about, okay, how, this is a very risky mission. How can we best mitigate risk and then go on this, go on this thing, understand the risk is always going to be there, but you're, you do your best to kind of control the things you can and then, and then minimize that, which you can't. Uh, and so I think for, for us, it was really having that discussion in terms of, okay, what are those things that I'm really interested in doing and exploring? Um, what are the pros and the cons of that? Um, and, um, and how does that fit into the plan? And so, um, and so part of that was we knew I had, you know, we both knew I had to kind of get my footing in, in the world on my own in the world of leadership and, and speaking in front of people. And so I took a job with, uh, this leadership company on St. Louis, wonderful group, um, and that was a salaried position. And I took a pay cut, you know, looking at like what I had been making in the, in the Navy, I deliberately took a pay cut because I knew, Hey, this is a, this is a chance for me to learn and grow and just kind of get good at this in a, you know, in a, in a uh, an environment that reduces and mitigates that risk. And I did that for about a year. And then I said, okay, I'm, I'm done with that. I want to, I want to now be an independent contractor. So I moved out and became an independent contractor and started just working my own stuff and, and just kind of stepped it up a little bit. And she was always supportive of that because she knew, well, A, she had faith in me because she'd been (laughs) married to me, you know, for my whole career. So she knew that I was someone who'd keep on going. Um, But B, there was always a discussion. And I think, I think the discussions that veterans sometimes don't have at that, at that dinner table are uh, what are the risks here? Um, But also an acknowledgement that, that it is, it is, I I don't know the percentages, Richard, but, but, you know, we could probably look this up, but I think it's like, it's like 95% chance that the, that the that the job you get coming out of the military, you won't have in one or two years after being in the military. In other words, you'll switch jobs. You'll find it's not for you. You'll change. You know, it's just, there's a process that uh, every, every transitioning veteran has to go through um, when they're finding their way. And part of finding their way is going to be shifting around, changing jobs, figuring out what's a good fit. Um, because they've just come from this, very um, defined um, and con- contained environment where everything makes sense and everything's kind of structured and, and, and the pathway's clear. And they're going into this new environment that the pathway's unclear and that's gonna take some flexibility and adaptability. So I think, I think having that conversation about what are the ultimate goals, what's the why, um, and, then, um, and then an acceptance of flexibility, adaptability, and patience, I think are the, are the most important things.
0: And you know, like I love your book. By the way, oh, thank um, you. I've read it a couple times now. Um, ever since I knew we were going to talk, I just I, I had to dig deep into it. Um, so there are certain attributes that successful ultra high performers have, but the one that kind of threw me for a loop, and I had, I had to you know sit back and 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 read and think about it was uh, narcissism. Yeah. How can that be? a positiveness? What can that be? A, how can that be a positive? Attribute? Yeah.
1: Well, so I, so I, one of the, one of the things I, I'm interested, again, I said, I'm really interested and fascinated with human behavior and what, what causes people to do the things they do, especially in times of challenge, uncertainty and stress, but, but even like uh, what causes people to kind of be able to set and achieve audacious goals. And so when I wrote the book and I kind of started uh, bucketing these attributes into, into these categories. So, what are the ones that make up grit? What are the ones that make up mental acuity, leadership, team ability, and drive? I I had to reconcile um, myself with this um, with this one question, which was, why did I become a Navy SEAL in the first place? All right. And when I was really honest with myself about that answer, now there's probably a couple answers in there. Okay, it's not just one. But when I was honest about myself with with a specific answer, it was because I wanted to be a badass, okay? I wanted to try to do something that very few people could do. Um, I wanted to try to be a part of a community that uh, very few people could and had what it took to be a part of. Um, And then I would ask guys around me the same question, and they would all agree. It was like, of course, yeah. You just, I mean, let's, let's be honest with ourselves. Yes, we're all patriots. Um yes we love our country and that's you know, and that, that's part of the reason why we wanted to join the military but but why is it that you wanted to be at ABC so, well you just you wanted to be special you wanted to stand out um, and that's what narcissism is when you just boil it down to the definition is the desire to stand out to be recognized be noticed be admired be adored um, and and so if we think about the human element of this right now, narcissism, just let's level the bubble here. Narcissistic personality disorder is a bad thing, okay? It's a, it's a codified psychological disorder. The DSM-5, which is kind of a psychological Bible, will lay out nine criteria, like sentences, criteria, that, um, that if you have five or more, you, you, you officially have that disorder. Um, but but the, the disordered personality, the narcissistic personality, is actually fairly rare in society. And when you look at the DSM 5 and you look at these criteria, you, you while it's while it's probably hard for most of us to, to agree with five or more of them, there are certainly aspects of one or two or three or even four that you're like, actually, okay, yeah, I could see myself feeling that way, doing that thing. And so I started thinking, okay, what does this have to do with human behavior and neurology? And the fact is, when we are infants and we are being paid attention to and adored by our parents, for example. We are getting hit with three very powerful chemicals, two neurotransmitters and one um, hormone. Uh, neurotransmitter dopamine, which is, we all know, it's a feel-good chemical. It tells, our, it tells our whole system, hey, this feels great, keep doing it. It's why it's one of the primary chemicals of addiction. Um, so dopamine, <laughs> we're getting dopamine. We're getting serotonin, which is a chemical that floods us and, and allows us to feel safe and protected and, and, and valued, okay? Okay. Um, then we're getting hit with the hormone, which is oxytocin, which is the love connection chemical, which we have all heard of, the love chemical, the love hormone. Um, so we're getting, we're, our body, when we're getting adored as an infant by our parents, we're getting flooded with those chemicals. It's why it feels so good. Well, this doesn't change when we're adults, okay? It still feels that way when we're getting paid attention to it and adored and admired by others, okay? When we're getting that standing ovation after a speech, when we're getting that award that we worked very hard for, the promotion or whatever, um, we feel flooded with those same chemicals. So so it's perfectly normal for every single human being at some point in their lives to want to feel adored, to stand out, to feel special, to feel admired, right? Um, and this this elemental feeling, this elemental desire is the engine to a lot of audacious goals. I mean, this is why someone wants to become a Navy SEAL or a famous singer or uh, a... a, 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 a Uh, a world renowned surgeon or, you know, teacher, or you name the profession, uh, but you maybe even, even, even a great dad or a mom. I mean, that, that feeling of, of being recognized that way is a very human feeling. And so I had to add it into the driver categories because it's a very human element. And I think as humans, we have to recognize our humanity in all of this and say, okay, narcissism, when moderated appropriately can be a very, very incredible driver uh, now, the caveat is um, it's it's if it gets overboard, you start getting into the disordered stuff and it's a bad thing. And it's like a vampire staring in the mirror. So in other words, you can't see it in yourself. <laughs> right. It's a it, you know, it, it's, it's really very visible in other you know, in others, but it's hard to see in ourselves. So the inoculation to that is to surround yourself with the trusted, loving people um, who are willing to and will always give you that completely radical candor, um, and that truth when you need it, you know, Hey, Rich, you're getting a little bit out of over, over your skis right now. Tone it back a little bit. You're getting, you're getting big headed here. Right. That's my wife. These, these are grounding. Wires. Yeah.
0: Exactly. I yeah. was going to say, you know, whenever you start feeling that way, you know, remember somebody's got to take. That's right. Yeah. Arms.
1: And so, so your family <laughs> does this, or your, your wife, my wife's my grounding wire, your teammates can do this. Um, and so as long as you don't surround yourself with sycophants, which is a sign of narcissism, um, you are you're keeping yourself inside of a circle that that keeps you in check and doesn't necessarily always put you at the center of attention. That's important, too. OK, because if you're always wanting to be at the center of attention, then you're tipping over into that too much narcissism. But but I, I think it's we have to recognize our humanity and and celebrate um, a controlled level of narcissism that allows us to to set audacious goals.
0: And, you know, I, and, and since I started reading your book, you know, we had the whole Super Bowl thing and I just started Looking at, you know, the people that were very, very highly successful and they a lot of them had some of those traits, you know, like Tom Brady, you know, he got picked number one hundred ninety nine. And when the owner came to him, he called him Kyle Brady and he said, uh, sir, my name is Tom Brady. And by you picking me, it was the best decision yeah. you'll ever make. I mean, can you pitch, imagine a seventh round pick saying, you know, I you know, that's the best decision right. you've ever yeah. made. So I guess, you know, had to have that little balance of, you know, self-confidence, but also a little self-narcissist to be able to tell the owner of the New England Patriots. You just picked me the, the 199th player in the league and it was the best decision. Absolutely. Ever made, yeah, I think
1: that's a great that's a great example. And, and yeah, you just it's a it's a very human thing. The, the, the key is use it effectively um, so that it'll help you help drive you towards those those audacious goals that you might
0: have. So can you please talk about, you know, your, your book and also what your mission is now? Well, yeah.
1: And, and, and so I, I think my mission, I'll start there. My mission and my passion is, is human behavior and what, and can, can we deconstruct human behavior down to some of these elemental qualities and cues and things so that everybody, every, every person can start to figure out what their own, what their own engine looks like. Right. So, so like I'll, I'll, um, I usually make an analogy with automobiles. Like we're all human. It's just like every car is an automobile, right? But some of us are Jeeps and some of us are Ferraris and some of us are SUVs. Um, now there's no judgment there because the Jeep can do things the Ferrari can't do and the Ferrari can do things the Jeep can't do, right? But the the, the challenge is lift your hood up and figure out what car, what type of engine you are because because without knowing it, you might be a Jeep trying to run on a Ferrari track or you might be a Ferrari trying to run on a Jeep track, right? So so I think the the key to our own human potential is first, very first, self-exploration and kind of figuring out what engine we are. And so, and so the attributes book kind of comes from that idea because attributes are innate qualities. These are these inherent qualities that we're all born with. Uh, we all come up to that. We all show up to the game with different levels of. Right. So we, have, we, we all have all of the attributes. The difference in each one of us is the levels to which we have. One so so uh, you know some one person might be a level eight out of ten on adaptability and the other person might be a level you know three on adaptability. There's nothing wrong with that. To judge it would be like to judge someone's hair color, right? But um, or judge our own hair color, right? Um, the the key is in that kind of palette that you come to the table with. What are your competencies? So you know how do you show up in challenge, uncertainty, stress, and how do, and what drives your behavior. Um, And then, from knowing that, you can say to yourself, "Okay, um, are there some attributes that I'm a little low on that I didn't know, and I actually want to develop and work on those?" Which you can you can do. You can you can actually develop attributes. It just takes. You can't do it the same way you can learn how to ride a bike or drive a car. It takes self direction. It takes self motivation, and it takes a deliberate um, march into the unknown. So, if someone wants to say develop their patience, they have to say to themselves, "Okay, I want to develop patience. I am now going to throw myself into environments." where my patience is tested so that I might develop it right so it's going to be uncomfortable but you can develop these attributes and I think this this type of knowledge is what really drives me what it's what drove me to write the book and when when you read the book I think you'll agree the book is not about Navy SEALs it's not about uh, top athletes it's not about super high performance it's really about the reader Um, and the and and when you read it you'll start to understand yourself ask, ask questions about yourself and say to yourself okay How do I show up in all of this and hopefully begin to deconstruct some of your own behavior so that you may do even better?
0: You know, and and I love, you know, like I said, I love your book and I love Brent's book because they weren't about the Navy SEAL. You know, it was about, you know, um, improving yourself. It's you know, it was it was it wasn't, you know, those all these stories about, you know, going into Afghanistan. It was more of this. This is a a learning and a teaching tool. And I think you know that it makes a big difference because there's there's a lot of books out there that right. are fluff. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> and you read them, you're like, okay, I could have seen this in a movie, but what does yeah, it got to do with that's me? right? So you know, your book, you know, you can actually internalize and use it as a an SOP in a, in a way. Um, now, being in you know, 21 years in the military. And, you know, most of the people that are listening to this are veterans or entrepreneurs. They're both. What are some of the attributes that we've learned from the military that can serve us in the civilian? Yeah, well,
1: so so we we certainly develop attributes in the military. And I think depending on the the discipline that you're in in the military will depend on the attributes. Right. So so one of the things about attributes is that is that the list of attributes to be a Navy seal for example is going to be different than the list of attributes required to drive tanks or required to drive ships or fly airplanes or whatever and so um, and so that's so the subjectivity actually matters. However, I will say that that the military holistically going through boot camp or any type of training and the kind of that, that, um, that um, requirement to be able to operate in uncertain environments will, Will we'll always develop things like courage. Will develop perseverance. Will de- develop adaptability. Will develop situational awareness. Um, I think discipline is developed. I think uh, self-efficacy is developed. Um, and then hopefully, if you're in leadership, well, so all of the team ability attributes are are, are developed in the military because you're you're so often part of the team. Um, and I think if you're in a leadership position, hopefully those attributes of leadership are developed as well. But that's not for certain. There are some people, there are some leaders in the military who are simply in charge. They're not leaders. And there's a difference between being, being in charge and being a leader, right? Uh, it often gets conflated, but it's not, the, it's not the same thing. Being in charge is a noun and being a leader is a verb, right? We, it's, it's a behavior, not a position. And so, this, you know, and, and by the way, you don't get to call yourself a leader. It's like calling yourself, you know, funny or good looking, right? It's other people who get to decide whether or not you're a leader, um, whether or not they will follow you. And that's all based on the behaviors that you execute to allow them that decision. So, uh,
0: so, you know, I love that, you know, I I heard, I seen, I mean, I seen a t-shirt once that one time said heroes talk about themselves, but let's get talked about.
1: Totally. That's so true. That's so true. And and, and as, and as it is, it so goes with leadership too. I, I always said, I always say if someone walks up to you and says, I am your leader, run the other direction because they they don't get it. Right. So um, and we all know that the great leaders in our lives, whether they be military, professional, personal, they are not people who designated themselves as our leader. They're people who simply behaved in a way that allowed us. To say, you know what, I would follow that person anywhere. And we and you and all of us veterans can 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 relate to this, right? Because because we can think of times in our career where, yes, there was a commanding officer, yes, there was a a senior enlisted, but but there was also that like e nothing over there that every time there's an issue, people went to him or her, right? Because they behaved like a leader, right? So leadership comes from people who say, I will follow that person. And it's not it's not necessarily always the positional aspect of it
0: you know like i said i was talking you know with brent and um and john and they you know they were talking about servant leadership you know and there's certain people that i could say you know that was in my career that i would literally run through a wall if they would ask me to do it just and you know the biggest thing you know i'm a big zig ziglar guy you know and he always says you know um People don't care how much you know. And so they know how much you care and caring about your team members, I think, is more important than anything, especially being if you're in a leadership position, you definitely need to care and get to know your people on
1: your team. Yeah. And and they'll feel that, too. I mean, they'll feel I mean, you can't fake it. You can't fake caring. So. And and how do you care for people? It's 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 a behavior, right? And you you spend time, you listen. So a, a buddy of mine always says, you know, likes to say, and he's totally right: is that time is the currency of leadership, um, because we all have the same amount. Um, when when we give it, we we're never getting it back, right? And so when you give your time to someone in your span of care, um, and you listen to them, and you you take time, and you you show them that you you are invested in them and and their future and their and their success. Um and you got their back when they fail. That endows you as a leader in their minds. I mean, they will then choose you as a leader, and that's the real that's that's the real kind of juice of of it. And and I know in my I mean, I was always in charge of something as an officer in the Navy, right? Um, and I know throughout my career, and I you know did a lot of leadership jobs, to include commanding officer of a SEAL team. And I know that um, there are many folks who consider to be a leader, and, and and I know that because a lot of them said so. They said, hey, I really loved... Uh, serving while, uh, under you while you're, while you're committing officer, you really helped me. But there's also a, a, a lot of folks who I was just the guy in charge, right? That was it, you know, and it was because I wasn't behaving in a way that allowed them to make that decision. So, um, so you're going to get both and, and any leader needs to just endeavor to behave that way. And they will, uh, they will at some point turn around and see people following them.
0: No, yeah, but that's funny. Like anytime, you know, on social media, if somebody, you know, friend requests me and I see the word influencer <laughs> in your profile, I run it far, far away. Yeah, it's an assumption. Really it's, a, it's
1: a pretty um, it's a pretty weighty assumption, I would say.
0: <laughs> so, so the last two questions I have, because I, I, I appreciate your time and I know your time is very precious and valuable. Um, how do we get in touch with you? How do we get the book? How do we... Um, get in touch with, you know, all your courses, whatever you have going on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the best,
1: the, the best place is uh, the attributes.com, the website, the attributes.com there. You can, uh, you can find the book. You can, there there are links to buy the book. We have an assessment tool that we've created. So it's a free assessment tool. So you can go there and you can take an assessment on where you stand for the grid attributes, where you stand for the drive attributes, where you stand for the mental acuity attributes. I'm still working on the, the leadership and team ability assessment tools. There's a little bit more complex, Ah, uh, but the people can go and take those ones for free. I've thrown some workbooks on the website, so if people want to know and learn how to develop each attribute, they can they can grab a workbook and and start working on some attributes they they might want to develop. So theattributes.com, and then of course I'm on social media, LinkedIn, um, and then Instagram are the are the two main places. So hit me up any of those places, and um, and yeah, definitely appreciate the the support.
0: Now, the last question I ask everybody, because I get I ask 100 different people and I get 100 different answers. You know, we're in such busy times and, you know, we're in 2021 now, you know, crazy, chaotic times. If I ask somebody to do the average person to do something in seven days, Mm -hmm. it's never going to get done. But if I say, uh, Rich, I want you to do something in the next 24 hours. I want you to take an actionable step. You're more likely to do it. So if you know somebody that's struggling with their transitioning out of the military or even their um, military career, what is something they can do in the next 24 hours to start the right? Yeah. um,
1: So I'm a big believer in the concept of asking better questions and just a quick a quick dive in that um, we are neurologically designed. Our brains are neurologically designed to answer questions. It doesn't we do it unconsciously all the time. But if we take conscious charge of that and we lodge a question into our frontal lobe, our brain has no choice but to answer that. It just happens. And I've done it. You can do experiments all day long and just ask yourself any question and just take out a piece of paper and just start writing answers. So your brain's going to start coming up with answers. All right, we often do this the wrong way. We say, why does this always happen to me? Why am I so bad at this? Why are all these people out to get me, right? Um, we can take charge of this and high performers always do this, right? They, they, they ask better questions and they ask themselves all right, what, have I, what can I learn from this? How can I grow? And so if you are someone who's struggling and you don't know what to do, take some time and ask yourself some more empowering questions. One of the first could be, hey, who's out there that can help me? And start making a list. And don't let yourself off the hook, okay? Because you'll you'll come up with a couple answers and then you'll, you'll feel like you can't think of anything. Just keep on asking yourself what else, who else, right? There's so many resource out, resources out there. There's so many people who want to help out there you are not alone um and you can find people to help you in under 24 hours you'll probably do it within an hour (laughs) you know and and so so stop for a moment take some time ask yourself some get up get out a piece of paper and a pencil ask yourself some empowering questions and start writing down those answers and then and then you'll come up with an even better question and ask yourself that question but but take charge of the quality of questions you ask. I'm a a big believer in this uh, idea that we are, that the quality of our lives is directly proportional to the quality of questions we consistently ask ourselves. And so if we take charge of that and consistently ask ourselves good, positive, empowering questions, it changes our lives almost immediately.
0: Wow. Guys, there you heard it from the man, the myth, and the legend. Rich, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I'm so grateful that you took the time. And um, I appreciate you. And I consider you a friend and a family and a member now. If there's anything I can ever do to support you. Well, thank you, Richard. Thanks so much know. for having
1: me. It's been such an honor. And yeah, let's stay in touch. Um, and and they, that, that, uh, that offers reciprocal. So, so let's stay in touch. And, and, and thanks for having me on. And, and thanks to the whole audience um, as, as teammates, as brothers and sisters and fellow veterans um, and even veteran supporters. Uh, it's, we're all one big team. It's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be part of that team.
0: Thank you, and have a you blessed. as well. Thank you, Richard. Blessed day.